Bitcoin, crypto bubbles, passive indexation. There's a lot of financial jargon out there. Old Mutual can help you make sense of it all and give you great advice to make the right decisions. If you've got a question or want to know how to get the most out of your money, call them on 0860 60 60 60 or speak to an old mutual financial advisor or your broker. Today's the day. Get great financial advice so you can do great things. Old Mutual is a licensed financial services provider. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. The Money Show brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Welcome to The Money Show on this Thursday evening. Pablo in place already, working feverishly on his thoughts on um, small business this evening. And, and it really is a, a critical topic. And I'm looking forward to the discussion with him tonight. And I want your calls uh, because I'd like to know your stories around it as well when it comes to the way in which you run your small business and the sort of steps you take to protect your small business as well. So we'll talk all about that coming up later on The Money Show. Plus, uh, we'll talk a little bit about the Small Business Institute which is sticking the knife into the Department of Small Business. I think Pablo will have some views on that. We're going to talk Altron this evening, a nice turnaround in place there. Why Coca-Cola Beverages South Africa is taking 11 of its sites, big sites, um, off the grid so that it generates its own electricity. Warren Ingram, uh, Graham Kuhn, our market commentator, um, and of course some Tetonyati, the Chief Executive Officer of Altron. All of that coming up on uh, tonight's Money Show. Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. Your fast fact question for you this evening. Which Cullinan will cost you three million rand? There's a question for you. Which Cullinan would cost you three million rand? 31702, 31567. Uh, if you want to stretch your grey matter this evening, not your hair, the stuff between your ears, your brain, uh, which Cullinan is priced at three million rand? talk all about that coming up a little bit later when we do the big reveal 702 and cape talk the money show what a memorial service today for seven mine workers killed at sibanya stillwater's Driefontein mine last week there was seismic activity on earth tremor to you and me caused rock and earth to fall and people died underground well there was also today a trades union picket outside the chamber of mines in downtown johannesburg protesters there warning that mine deaths are on the rise and the issue they say is not being taken seriously enough now it's really interesting do yourself a favor and go on to the chamber of mines website where you will find a, a graph which illustrates the frequency of mine deaths in south africa and one death is far too many Let's face it. Um, but mining in South Africa has always been a very dangerous activity. And if you go back to 2007, and I'm sure that if the graphs were looked at further back, the numbers would be even more dramatic. But from about 220 deaths in 2007, numbers fell by 2016 to between 50 and 100, probably about 75 deaths, but have picked up again since. And that's the concern that, amongst others, the National Union of Mine Workers and the Mineral Resources Minister, Gwede Mantashe, were talking about today. South Africa does operate some of the world's deepest and most dangerous mines. At what point do we draw a line under the risks that workers face and say, no, this far and no further? Dr. Siswe Pakati is the Head of Safety and Sustainable Development at the Chamber of Mines. What is that point, Siswe? At what point do we say it's no longer worth it to send human beings four kilometers underground to dig dirt out of the earth for profit? 
Good evening, Bruce, and good evening to the listeners. Um, let me just uh, uh, indicate that ensuring the safety and well-being of all employees is the utmost priority for all stakeholders, and this talks to our commitment to the industry goal of zero harm, which, which we seek to make sure that uh, every colleague of ours return home safely and unharmed at the end of every day. Well, that issue as to when it's, it's, it's enough is enough uh, is, is a question of really of science. Uh, and we, we're busy with, with studies that are trying to actually enable us to understand uh, what has caused this spike in seismic events. Uh, you did allude to, 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 the, to the numbers, uh, and, and you can see that there's been a downward trend. And this has been a story of collaboration between the chamber, chamber members, organized labor, and, and, and the state. So we saw a spike in 2017, and it came against the backdrop of a much improved uh, containment of seismic events. In 2003, we had something like 48 related seismic events. In 2015, there were only three. In 2016-7, then we saw a spike uh, last year to 14 fatalities. And of course, this talks to the depth of our mines, particularly our gold mines, the hard rock mines. Um, and, and there are ways of actually containing um, uh, these, these seismic events. We can't really predict or manage them, but we have to make sure that when they happen, they are not catastrophic. They don't now, result in... Explain in this concept of containment of seismic events to me, please, because, I mean, the Earth is an ever-moving, living, breathing planet. I mean, we, we, we know that. We know that yeah. when you disrupt the layers of the Earth, you, you can cause movement. But explain to me, please, how might, you might contain nature in a mining context. It's containing the impact. You know, we're okay. not saying we, we, we're containing the impact that it doesn't result in loss of life. So we busy, I mean, we reflected on this through our CEOs last year, and there is a task team which has been established through the Chambers Mining Industry Occupational Safety and Health Fall of Ground Task Team, looking at what has been happening, the existing body of knowledge, identifying uh, leading practices, and that work is ongoing and is being developed, and findings will be shared across the industry very soon. And with other uh, partners from organized labor and the state at the Mine Health and Safety Council, there are projects actually going on there which we have commissioned in terms of looking at the way we mine our mining methods and designs. So that's going on. And of course, the Council for Geological Sciences, is, this is one area that they are looking at. So uh, we believe, as we have seen uh, since 2003, we can't arrest this kind of trend that we have witnessed since the second half of last year. Um, there hasn't been any indication as to say when will be the time to say these mines are no longer actually feasible to, to have people working under them. There are many th other things we're working on on technology issues. And, and I can also indicate that um, when it comes to, to these kind of things, we also rely on workers having to withdraw from working in, in, in dangerous working places. Behavior is one of the things that we need to look at. And our counterparts in organized labor, we need them. We need their, their, their support on this. So, 
So as the chamber, we we are equally concerned with the trend, uh, I have to mm. say. And I mean, uh, the, the, re- the reality is that since 1993, fatalities on mines are down 88%. It's, uh, it's a significant decrease. Department of Mineral Resources has taken this issue very, very seriously indeed. When there is a fatality at a mine or when there are multiple fatalities at a mine, mines get closed and go into care and maintenance while the reasons are uncovered. There's been a very vigorous intervention by the state. That ultimately has another impact and when it becomes unfeasible to mine, mining output drops, jobs are lost and so there's this really difficult balancing act and without serious investment, South African mining probably in a sunset industry phase, production what uh, in March uh, this year down 8.5%. We produced less in March than February. I mean one gets the sense that mining is being squeezed from every angle. Yes, that's true. And talking about investment, uh, let me just share you with the kind of investment that we've, we've, we've channeled towards improving safety. I mean, 150 million has been invested in false of ground research, and, and we've seen dividends actually in that area uh, from 1993 to 2016, a 92% improvement. And with the Chambers Mosh uh, Learning Hub Division, where we've seen mining with nets and bolt. So that has contributed to this downward trend that you've just alluded to, the 88% from 615 fatalities in 1993 to 73 in 2016. Another 250 million has been channeled towards research into cities associated with our deep level mines. And another 40 million has been actually channeled to, to, to research and applied research focusing on new mining designs and, and, and methods, you know. So so all of that has contributed to this downward. All we need indeed is a step change, working together with our stakeholders and making sure that we arrest uh, this kind of unfortunate incidents that we continue to see. Uh, we are, you know, um, that's that's where we are. We are hard at work and, and we, we value each and every life uh, of our employees at our mines. Dr. Cesar Pakati, thank you. He is the Head of Safety and Sustainable Development at the Chamber of Mines, South Africa. And not for a moment to play down the severity of deaths on mines. As I said at the beginning, one is one too many. We cannot afford a single death on mines. We had uh, an increase of to 88 deaths uh, during last year on South African mines compared to 73 in 2016. So far this year, there have been 22 fatalities on mines. Every day in South Africa, 50 people are murdered. Every day, as many people are killed in car accidents. I was sitting next to somebody today who works for a big foundation who was talking to me about TB and saying every day the equivalent of a loaded airliner crashes into a virtual runway in terms of people who die from TB. And not to play down mine deaths, but one has look, got to look at you know, the representation that miners have got through trades unions. One, TB sufferers don't have a trades union. People driving their cars don't have a trades union. People are murdered don't have a trades union to shout for them. The trades unions are shouting on behalf of mining, and that's a good thing. It's their job. But, boy, we've got so many other issues as well with which to grapple. The Money Show. The Markets. Well, today's sign of warning the investigation into its overstatement of profit and the treatment of its off balance sheet entities and the crookery and skullduggery is going to, re- they didn't say that part, uh, will result in further material impairments 
beyond the 6 billion euros that they announced in December. Those further material impairments, bigger than the 6 billion euros, implies several billion more. PwC has still got a way to go with its forensic investigation, but clearly what it's finding has got very little upside. So far, sign-off is down 98% from its peak, and it's facing several lawsuits. It includes those class actions, the 59 billion rand lawsuit from Christo Visa himself. Um, who sat on the board of, of Steinhoff for two years before he was comfortable to put money into it, and then it all disappeared. Uh, Bloomberg reporting today that the businessman GT Ferreira also looking for 100 million euros, and Techie Town Parties looking for 120 million euros. Lots and lots of people got stung so badly by this. It's a complete catastrophe. It's such a mess, Graham Kerner. I mean, you just look at the, at the, at the impairments beyond the 6 billion euro mark and wonder whether there's anything worth having in this business. Bruce has reached the point where when you see there's a Steinhoff sends announcement, your heart sinks because it's just going to be another write down. I mean, it was so twain. awful, they didn't even put the details on sends. They said, yeah, if you want the details, go to our website because yeah. it gives you time to acclimatize. Yeah, it's just, so, I mean, we, we originally thought, and I know there are quite a few sort of very notable institutions that still think there's quite a lot of value in here. But equally, when they read this, they must say, you know, that we spoke about it two weeks ago. Unfortunately, we don't know what the asset value realistically is. Is and you know the the debt and the the, the claims and the contingent liabilities just seem to grow. So it's almost as though that equity layer is just evaporating. It's quite irritating. Quite irritating. The two questions I'm asked most at the moment, whenever I go and somebody recognizes me somewhere, they go, "So should I buy sign off a Bitcoin?" And I just walk away because I can't answer either with any <laughs> level of integrity. Yeah. Uh, Imperial, so you're not in the binary bet option. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go go. Yeah, when somebody phones you and offers you binary trading on Facebook, then do that rather. Um, imp- uh, that is a facetious comment. Don't do that. Um, Imperial trading update today, the first one since Mark Lamberti stepped down. Um, Imperial in the process of its own managed separation, if you like, splitting into the, the cars business and into the logistics business. Everything on track? Yeah, everything seems seems fine i think um you know mark is a is a, a very seasoned person and uh, although he's no longer there i think a lot of what we see here would be attributable to him so yeah i i think it's sort of the new vogue you've got grinrod as well you know spinning the the shipping assets off i think a lot of people are saying well and hopefully naspas do a lot more of that because uh, there's i think even more opportunity for that so i think it's it's trading well it's being well positioned well run um i think there's a fair amount of management depth in there as well so uh, that all looks well uh, nedbank had an update this morning that sent the share price of, of nedbank and the rest of the banking sector rocketing it was a great day for nedbank yeah i think it's more around the capital adequacy stuff as well so um i think it's it, uh, you were chatting to bruce Hempel, was it last yep. yeah last evening and everything's on track. Um, I think some people might have felt how much, how much of a, a, a capital buffer uh, is there. You, you know, it's always nice to have a shareholder of reference who's got more than 50%. So I think that encouraged the market uh, as well. But I think, Bruce, maybe one of the reasons why the banks moved, because if you look, you know, it wasn't just the banks, but you had the, you know, the likes of, uh, of Sunlum up as well. I think the, the, the reality is the market is saying, well, you've still got lots of PEs of 20 and above in terms of the retailers and a couple of those and even the likes of Bidvest. Um, you, know, you know, you're paying early teens PEs for the, the big banks. You're getting really good dividend yields. And, and, I mean, what we're talking about now is just further affirmation or confirmation that the South African banking sector is really well run, well placed. Mm. And if you... Okay, some of the data out of economics data in the last day or so hasn't been so cheerful. But if you take a positive five-year view on, on, on South Africa and Africa... 
the South African banks, I think, could have a good good few years ahead of them. So I think it's it's really that that in a market where value is maybe a bit hard to find. Yeah, I think you can you can do a lot worse than the big banks, even at these levels. Uh, a comment on social media today <clears throat> from the fund manager Delphine Governor, beg mm. your pardon, saying Naspers, as you mentioned Naspers earlier, Naspers is now a venture company, a venture capital company. Full stop. Not everyone appears to recognise and accept that a metamorphosis, it seems. But let's accept, in terms of overall impact to portfolio, ten cent was its deal of a lifetime. It's not a media company. It's not an IT company. It's not a technology company. It's a venture capital company. I'd never thought of it that way. Um, but it's quite an interesting perspective on the way in which it operates. I'm not sure I entirely agree with it because if you look at, you know, Tencent still represents, you know, almost the entire NAV. In fact, you get Tencent everything else. Tencent represents 90%. Yeah. Well, it, it represents 130%. <laughs> so I, I would argue it's probably a Tencent play with some of the other stuff. I don't know if I agree with that also because I think the investment in Flipkart didn't take a hell of a long time. What I particularly like, though, is the fact that Flipkart's value unlock tells me two things, Bruce. One is there is um, where, where I was fairly critical over the last few years in terms of the cash they've been burning in e-commerce. Clearly, these e-commerce assets are actually – they're all grown up now and people like Walmart see value in them. Um, and the second thing is it, it tells you that when they feel value has been extracted, they're going, to, they're going to suck it up. But I think what Delphine's probably saying is they're going to take that cash that they got for $0.10 cent a, a month or so ago. They're going to take this $27 billion rand and they're probably going to put it into venture capital. I'm a lot more confident that uh, that 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 will be well deployed, and and you know what, 27 billion rand. This is, we've got to put things in context. Is not a lot of money in 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 Naspers's life. No. So I think um, I, I hear what she's saying, but I think they've proven themselves as being reasonably not reasonably good at finding these these uh, investments, and um, I think if they do what we were talking about in terms of the likes of Imperial and. And, uh, and mutual in terms of managed separations and actually hiving off some assets, um, I think you could get quite a lot of upside. And, and the truth is, if, you know, if the 27 billion rand you know, disappears like mist in the morning sun, the, the truth is it's such an insignificant part of the NAV. But if it works, a la a Flipkart or a, or a Tencent, you know, you've actually got a hell of a lot of optionality. So if you ask, do you buy Bitcoin, uh, Steinhoff or Naspers, I'd rather buy Naspers in spite of the fact that there is kind of a, a risk element to it. You've got a massive value underpin. The share is probably trading at, at a 40% discount to, to underlying value. It's, there's a huge margin of safety. Okay. Graham Kerner with the Kerner Perspective this evening on The Money Show. I asked you earlier in the fast fact question, which Cullinan is priced at a little over 3 million rand? It's not the diamond, Graham. Don't get excited. It's the Rolls-Royce Cullinan. <laughs> um, the Rolls-Royce, now owned by BMW, has launched its own SUV following Bentley and Lamborghini. I think Ferrari's going to have one next year. And they actually named the BMW, uh, the Rolls-Royce Cullinan, after the Cullinan diamond found at Cullinan near Pretoria and then slotted into the crown jewels. It lacks the sparkle. I look at a picture of it. It lacks the sparkle, Graham Kerner does it not, of the Cullinan diamond. It looks a little bit, uh, and, and again, this is no not wanting to upset anybody at Volvo, but it does look like a pimped-up Volvo XC90. <laughs> uh, and, it, yeah, over 3 million rand, and certainly once import duties and things are lopped on in South Africa, that's the car that's going to cost more than 4 million rand here. I You're lost cannot, for words. I'm, I'm at a loss for words. You know, BMW is, is a, a really interesting company. It's got a lovely brand portfolio. It's a business we're actually growing more fond of. But you know, I don't know how many of those they're going to sell. Quite well, they're expecting to sell lots in China. And I guarantee you there will be probably a dozen or two dozen 
people in South Africa who will not wait to get hold of a Rolls-Royce Cullen. I'm sure a few footballers will probably buy it as well. It seems right up their alley, huh? It is the perfect footballer's car. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Well, we'll talk to Mteto Nyati in just a couple of minutes' time, Chief Executive of Altron. Nice turnaround happening there. On the next Money Show, I'm cracking open the Friday file. We'll also play the Brutal Bears quiz and anything with a rolling R. We'll play that as well on the next Money Show. We'll recap the week's biggest business news stories and insights. We've got some great stories to tell you all about, plus, of course, all the big money stories from the day that is Friday. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. Welcome to The Money Show on this fabulous Thursday evening. Warren Ingram's just walked through the door. That's good news. A tick. Pablo Fatidi's walked through the door much earlier. Tick, tick. He gets two ticks, you see. Um, and uh, we'll be ticking both of them off later on uh, on The Money Show. Your questions for Warren Personal Finance, your questions for small business for Pablo to 31702 and 31567. Well, signs of a sustained turnaround developing at Altron under the chief executive and Teton Yati. He joined the group from MTN. The past year seeing revenues up 14%, earnings up in the high teens as well. And Teton Yati joins us now, the Altron chief executive. It's been how long since you got your feet under the CEO's desk there, Teton? It's uh, 13 months now, Bruce. Okay, so full year, so now it is all yours. You take full and total <laughs> responsibility for everything. How are things going? Uh, things are going uh, very much in line with plan. You know, we set ourselves uh, some clear five-year objectives uh, about July last year, and we are slightly ahead of where we thought we would be at this time. I mean, the biggest strategy shift was the decision to exit manufacturing. A lot of companies are doing that in South Africa. Um, And it's sort of, I suppose, if you can't compete in manufacturing, it's pointless trying to compete. Have you given up totally on manufacturing in this country? Well, we certainly have made a decision that uh, we need to focus only on ICT. Uh, We feel that we are not necessarily the right kind of company to be in the manufacturing space. Uh, however, there are other entities uh, globally that need to have a presence here in South Africa, but they are doing global manufacturing. Uh, I think for those kind of companies, uh, it makes sense for them to to buy the kind of assets that we have in the manufacturing space. I mean, one of the companies that you've sold, I think, already is Power Tech, um, and, yes. and, and it's, and it's you know, a venerable old South African company in the in the world of making electronic electrical cables. I mean, and it's it's these are these are big industrial businesses that have got a place in the future, just not within the Ultron that you see. Uh, certainly, I mean, when you look at uh, Power Tech, uh, in particular, the transformer business, uh, it's one of those companies that have literally kept the lights up in in South Africa for for many, many years uh, because they've been building these transformers. Uh, It's it's actually the only plant like that on the continent, you know. And it's it's why for us, we just do not want to just shut down this plant. It's It's so valuable for the country. And we're happy to have finally managed to secure a buyer by the name of SGP Smith, a German company that will be investing in South Africa and will continue to employ thousands of, of people 
from South Africa. Well, when you look at appetite to make investments in South African industry and the sort of businesses that you've got on the market, the businesses you're looking to exit, how much more interest is there now than there might have been before the political transition within the ANC of December? I must say that the interest is uh, much higher. Uh, in December, things were gloomy, uh, both in uh, locally here. The executives were talking talk to our customers in almost all of the of the sectors. Uh, people were fearing down uh, about the future of this country. Uh, look at it now. I mean, five months later, things have changed a lot. You know, they, you've got uh, the finance industry, uh, some of our customers, they're really, really uh, going after growth. And that's exciting for the country. And and we need to give Ramaphosa all the support that he needs. Uh, he, he cannot be the only one that is uh, driving and, and making sure that we're creating the right climate uh, for our country. We, as the leaders of business, have to make that contribution as well. And we are. Uh, and then we look at the the business. You've got eight operating business units in South Africa, um, and you, you've you've got. I mean, it surprises me constantly how many companies compete internally with each other, either deliberately or ignorantly, or do it just to spite <laughs> one another. I mean, the politics of, polit- of business is as bad as the politics of politics. But you've gone on what what is a big global trend at the moment: the one business philosophy. Absa has done it with one Absa. You've done it with one Altron, and it does seem to focus the minds of everybody in a, a large corporation, a large conglomerate, um, the, like an Altron, for example? It does. I mean, for us, uh, it made a lot of sense. Uh, but the starting point for us, it was not just, you know, let's go and say, create this one Altron. We started uh, by having discussions with our customers. And we picked up a, a very important insight from the customers. Uh, the customers were telling us that they want to do business with few suppliers, so they are reducing the numbers of suppliers, but they want to do a lot more with the few suppliers that they are, they, they are dealing with. So basically, what it meant uh, for us, if we were continuously going to go to these customers as the different entities, very likely we were going to uh, end up being irrelevant to those customers. So it made a lot of sense to pull together and be one Ultron in front of the customer and be able to provide that one-stop shop when it comes to ICT. I'm uh, Yati, before the line goes down, the Altron chief executive this evening on The Money Show. In a couple of minutes' time, uh, we're going to talk to the chief economist at Econometrics, taking your questions this evening. And the uh, main question that many of you have been asking is, why is it that the world politically is so worried? And I'm sort of summarizing multiple questions, and we're going to summarize it into one. But the world politically is so worried about what's uh, Donald Trump and worried about Iran, but markets don't seem to be too perturbed. So should we be concerned about Iran? That is the question I'm asking Azar Jameen, Chief Economist at Econometrics, in a moment. The Money Show, FAQs. FAQs this evening, and you're really curious as to what's going on with Iran and what's going on with Donald Trump and his decision to cancel uh, the nuclear deal, and it's caused huge political ructions all over the world. No huge market real concerns at this stage. Dr. Azar Jameen, Chief Economist at Econometrics. I'm summarizing lots of the questions that we've received, Azar, into a simpler one, saying, should we be concerned about Iran? I do think that we should be concerned about Iran uh, from a longer-term point of view, or rather not so much about Iran itself, but in terms of the disruption that this might cause 
through higher oil prices and increased isolation of the United States and Israel that might see more protectionist tendencies uh, evolving. And that in turn could result in higher inflation from both sides, higher import tariffs and higher oil prices, and cause interest rates to rise a little more steeply than we had previously thought. And from an emerging markets point of view, uh, it could ultimately see an increase in risk aversion towards emerging markets. But in the short term, you're quite right, it doesn't seem to have done that. It seems to have actually, much of it seems to have been discounted over the past few months. And we saw oil prices rising from $60 a barrel to their current levels of 77. And uh, a lot of that had to do with expectations that the U.S. would pull out of the nuclear deal. That's the part that worries me is the oil price. I just see it uh, telling up and up and up. And we've seen a little bit of weakness in the currency recently, excluding today. And I just get frightened as to what next month's petrol price is going to be and the month after that well, and the, the knock-on effect it has on the ability of the Reserve Bank to give us some interest rate relief. Well, that is precisely why I don't think one can totally ignore this latest event in terms of its implication for the man in the street and the overall economy. The fact is that uh, fuel prices currently stand to rise by up to 60 cents per litre at the beginning of June. And, uh, you know, coming on the back of previous fuel price increases in April and May, as well as the hike in VAT, this puts a paid to hopes of inflation falling any lower than the 3.8% that we saw in March. Uh, and uh, it endorses the Reserve Bank's expectation of inflation moving back towards the 5% mark, which in turn means uh, you really don't hold your breath for further interest rate cuts. Yeah, and that's, uh, that, that is the consequence of Donald Trump. I mean, it, it's, it, they're, they're, it's a complex and deep issue, but one of the key catalysts of this is Donald Trump's disruptive style of politics, and, uh, and we feel the consequence around the world, and particularly here at home. Uh, you're absolutely correct, and you know so much of the attention domestically is focused on the political environment and what Ramaphosa does and what Maumampello does, etc. But actually, as dominant an influence is what Donald Trump does, and we should never lose sight of that. Dr. Zarjamin, thank you very much for a lovely perspective this evening, Chief Economist at Econometrics. Should we be concerned about Iran? I think what, what Zarjamin is saying is no. Be concerned about America. <laughs> and its leadership and the the madness and the disruptive nature of the decisions of Donald Trump. Some of you get cross with, uh, with me when I say rude things about Donald Trump, but he is doing demonically stupid stuff. He really is. He's unsettling the globe, which has been so wonderfully stable and steady for so long. Perhaps he's a genius that will be appreciated long after he's dead and buried. Maybe revisionist historians will find an upside, but right now it's hard to see. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. The Money Show brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Welcome to The Money Show. Talk to Coca-Cola Beverages South Africa in a moment as to why they are getting themselves off the electricity grid. And then Warren Ingram as to whether or not you can fire yourself. But he's not that kind of guy. He's not Donald Trump or uh, Tokyo Sehwale. No, he's not. FIRE is an acronym for Financial Independence and Early Retirement. So is it possible to get yourself well-invested, nice and young, so that you can make choices by the time you're 50, 55? Maybe early retirement nowadays is 60. 
dreadful thought. But yeah, maybe that's uh, give yourself options by being sensible younger. Warren Ingram on that coming up in a few minutes. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. Well, I referred to this just before Eyewitness News, how ESCOM had been complaining that demand for electricity had fallen due to a drop in economic growth and completely oblivious to the fact that it had played a, a pivotal role in the economic slowdown when it ran so carelessly out of power in 2008. Now it wants hefty price increases to make up for paying over the odds for coal and other corruption that it's been subjected to in recent years. And what's going to happen is a, a self-fulfilling pro- prophecy, as we are finding out from Coca-Cola in just a moment. But more and more companies, more and more households that can afford it, are simply going to take themselves off the grid. Andrew Ferret is the supply chain director at Coca-Cola Beverages South Africa. You're taking 11 of your sites uh, onto photovoltaics, Andrew. What percentage of your sites is that? Uh, good evening, Bruce, and thanks for inviting me onto your show. Um, that's all of our manufacturing facilities will ultimately have some level of, of solar TV uh, uh, providing power to them. Uh, okay, so some level, it, does, it means that you're not coming off grid completely, but you are going to be taking a, a proportion of your energy from the sun. Yeah, correct. Um, yeah, we certainly can't come off the grid completely, and that's, that's one of our objectives. Um, with the installations that we're doing uh, this year, and, and the last one will finish in the beginning of 2019, we'll have about 10 to 11 percent of our our total um, electricity consumption will be solar. Uh, does it the su- balance will come off the grid? Do, does it suggest that you are either um, that the technology is not good enough at this stage to take yourselves off the grid completely, or you're simply reducing to uh, looking to reduce your um, your dependence on ESCOM? What 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 is the thinking behind doing only 10 percent of your electricity demand? So there are, there are a couple of factors behind that. You know, the, the initial thinking into going into solar was more around our sustainability agenda and to reduce our carbon footprint and so on. Obviously, the, the opportunity to reduce our dependence on, on ESCOM supply presented itself. Um, but there's, quite a, there's a number of constraints uh, in, in our decision to go as far as we're going now. One is that we are not a licensed um, nursery-approved independent power producer, so we must stay below the limit that they set of two megawatts per installation. We also not in a, uh, and because we don't have the license, we're not in a position to sell power back to the grid. So we have to balance what we can use uh, against uh, the possibility of producing excess power that we have. We've currently got no use for. As the regulations change, we see the opportunity, of course, of growing that. And in addition to that, as the battery and storage technology improves, that's the opportunity where we could we could extend the um, solar the solar generation further um, and take ourselves somewhat further off the grid. So your expertise is in putting sugar and 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 water and flavour into the bottles and and inserting gas into the bottles. That's what you guys are good at. You're not good at when last I checked at generating electricity. Are you running it yourselves or are you outsourcing it? No, we've outsourced it. So we've we've entered into a power purchase agreement with with our partners, Melilo. Um, They're doing the installation. They'll then have a a running or operating and maintenance contract. and essentially, we're into a 25-year agreement with them to do that. 
and, and will it will it be cheaper? Mentioned. Will it be cheaper than 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 sucking power off the ESCOM grid? Yes, ultimately, yeah, yeah, it will be cheaper. I mean, it, it's a relatively um, slow return on investment, which is another reason why we wanted to to go to an, a, a purchase agreement. But yeah, it, it, there is a financial return in us doing it. And then particularly as the technology has developed over the last couple of years, that's become more and more viable for us. The most interesting thing is that you went through a 24-month bid period that started with 31 bidders. And what was interesting to me is that there are that many people with the capacity to do projects of this size in South Africa right now. People are smelling blood and seeing the opportunity um, to reduce reliance on ESCOM. Yeah, sure. I mean, the 31 did include a number of, of overseas companies. Uh, it also became apparent fairly quickly that there weren't that many that can execute a, a project of this magnitude in the time that we wanted to do it. And we did have, you know, getting to the point of, of being able to enter into a power purchase agreement uh, took some time uh, to get it through our our requirements, our shareholders' requirements and so on. So it has been quite a journey to get to where we've got to. What we're particularly pleased about, and it, it was one of our objectives, is that Molino is a South African-owned company, um, and that certainly featured highly in our evaluation. They're a, currently a level four VE contributor with a with a solid roadmap to get to level two in the next two years. So we're we're proud that we've been able to partner with a South African company to do this. Uh, I, I remember talking to Grant Patterson as he uh, joined Edcon, and I said, "But you know, just six months ago, you were uh, looking to sell electricity." And he was the chairman, the executive chairman of an American company in South Africa called NRG Africa. Um, yeah. And he was saying, "Well, just the you know, power prices hadn't gone up as quickly as anticipated, and so the business case for it didn't materialize as fast as he'd hoped." And I, I said, "I don't know, but I suppose he got bored and, and moved on to something more challenging at S, uh, at, at Edcon." Um, but but here's the, the the scenario where ESCOM is always going to be short of funds and is going to be leaning more and more heavily on its customers, particularly industrial customers like yourselves. Um, is there a, a plan to to up the this, this the ten percent usage to, to to higher levels? Yeah, we would we would be looking to do that um, to get to maybe twenty or twenty five percent by by twenty twenty five. But that is dependent, you know, on our on our getting an independent power producer license through NERSA, and we haven't started exploring that. We kind of we think this is a big step for now to get it across these these eleven facilities and properly integrated and and um, running well, and then we'll evaluate where we go to from there. But it was to get a foot in the door, I think, was why we've taken this approach rather than go for an, a, a a license to to produce back into the grid. Andrew Ferret, thank you. Supply Chain Director for Coca-Cola Beverages, South Africa. Interesting story. The Money Show. Personal Finance. Personal Finance brought to you by Ned Group Investments. See money differently. Ned Group Investments is a registered unit trust manager. The fun police are here. That's Warren Ingram. <laughs> the financial <laughs> advisor and director at Galileo Capital. Tell us how to fire ourselves. So it, it, this struck me uh, this week. I was I was uh, seeing some clients in the Cape, and and they were uh, shocked. In a, I think pleasantly shocked in a way by by a lady that lived in one of the villages who had retired with very little money. Uh, you know, life had dealt her numerous blows, and she'd worked her whole life, but ended up with with not much money. And her her decision was to take all of her money in the world and buy 
a small house on a with a large large ish piece of land and to start growing vegetables and that's all she did she she used up literally every cent of her capital that she had to do that and um you know if 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 i'm um you know reading a financial planning textbook that's that's certainly not going to be the thing that you're going to do in a in a financial no. planning textbook and she she does get the 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 old age grant i think if that's the right word for it the um the, the, she gets she gets a pension she gets a state pension and and that's it that's which a, is about 1600 rand a month or thereabouts and that's what she uses basically to pay for her property taxes that's that's what what that cash flow is for the rest she grows uh, excess vegetables, so she she grows and consumes what she eats, and then the the the, the excess she barters with people in the village uh, for for things that she doesn't get on on her on her little piece of of land, and and there's this community that's grown up around each other of people that that have you know led lives that had nothing to do with growing, and they weren't they were never farmers, they were you know these were people that had had lives um, you know in in cities working, and suddenly there they were. Uh, by by sheer force of circumstance, you know, you know, to live an existence which I guess a huge proportion of our country has been forced to live for decades, but but these were these were working people that you know had worked long lives, and and uh, someone told me that you know th- there are um, th- there's an entire community that that's been going for a few years in in America and now growing around the world that that choose to do this uh, from a very early age, and they are called FIRE. So it's financial independence and retire early, and and their whole view is. Turn the world, um, you know, completely on its head. So these are lo- largely people that would aim to be in a position where they can live um, off their own, on their own means, without having to work for a living. By the time they get to forty or there or there or thereabouts, and and their whole idea is that that we've been conned, we've been sold a, a bill of goods by society, where we've been told to get a great education, go to university, study hard, go and work for a, for a corporate and and work our, our, our lives until we're 65 or, or whatever the deal is. And then get spat out onto the rubbish heap. And then get, and then retire and, and you know, live, live for the... F- and then spend the last five years of your life actually living, yes. Yeah. And they're saying why, you know, and, 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 and who said, and, and why should we do that? And, and so what they do is they... They do go, and they, they generally, if you look at them, um, and it's interesting to, 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 to go and read their stories. These, these are people, they're not earning massive uh, salaries of, uh, overseas, but, but they're earning reasonable salaries. And they, they completely start pretty much like this lady that I was describing. They, they go to the complete basics. So they won't go and buy cars, and they'll go and stay in the smallest little piece of accommodation they possibly can as close to their place of work as they possibly can so that they can walk to work and if if they can't walk they'll cycle and if they really can't cycle they'll they'll take public transport and they will um, save pretty much everything that they earn they will not go out um, you know um, eat, eating meals with friends all the time they're certainly not going to be you know having the delicious you know um, major coffees, um, you know, four or five of those a day, and and some of them. I mean, I, I feel this is extreme, but some of them go from drinking bottled wine to box wine, you know, and and they'll turn all of this. Um, They're still drinking wine, which is better than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> but they but they turn life on its head by saying, what's really important to us is to actually live life, and so we we need to start doing that as early and as fast as possible, and and this working thing that we're doing now is simply a means a, to yeah, get there means, as fast as we can. It's a means to an end. That's all, and there's no there's no hamster wheel, there's no rat race. You, you know, we're going to use what we can from that to get us going, 
and then and then we jump off as fast as we possibly can and and that really uh, st- uh, struck me because I thought you know it's it's something that we kind of talk about every now and then on the show is about prioritizing you know prioritizing your money and pr- prioritizing your expenses and what's important and what's not not important and finding reasons to save and reasons not to just consume everything all the time and and here are people that have you know i mean and generally quite young and i think that that is the the, the irony of all of this is it's it's so it's such an old concept that it's new again you know, I think, and, and that's what's interesting to me is, you know, the, the, this is how probably the bulk of the world's population lived two, three hundred years ago, and to a large extent, it's probably still how a large proportion of South Africa's population lives, but not except by except people aren't able to stop at forty. Um, people have to carry on simply because you you have a subsistence existence. Yeah, they're forced into in, into a circumstance, but but the the point for people that aren't forced into that is. Uh, are you just jumping into this this sort of bandwagon and and doing things because that's what society tells you to do? And and it's I think such a good lesson and it's such good thinking because so often when you grow up and especially if you grow up in a household where money has been valued and money has been treasured, the first thing you do when you get a paycheck is you go and blow it on all the stuff your mom and dad wouldn't let you have. Exactly. And then that was fun, and it was and 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 the jawling is is brilliant and it is so much fun. And you get caught in that cycle. The vast majority of people who enter the professional world get caught in that trap of consumption and the, the trap of the, the jaw. I mean, you look at professional couples um, in every city in South Africa and, and you see the cars they drive, you see the houses they live in and, and, and the, you know, even the schooling that, they, that they've bought into for their kids, the concept of where those kids need to go to school. It's not just about getting just the very best education for their child. Obviously, that's important. But also, there's an element of prestige to, to attached to this now. And, and all of these, you know, the, the, these factors kick in. And society kind of reinforces those things on us all the time. So, you know, if, you, if you're, I mean, and many parents that w- would resonate with this. You know, if you, if you haven't bought the correct stroller, you know, you kind of get the societal pressure to say, you know, did you get the X, Y, Z? I, I don't know because I don't have kids. But but I watched this. Did you get the equivalent of Rolls Royce's Cullinan uh, SUV that they launched today yeah. uh, for your kids' pram? Yeah, and 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 you know if your if your child isn't speaking seven languages by the age of four, maybe you need an occupational therapist and this therapist and that therapist, and and so on and so on and so on. And, and by the time you know those parents are, are in their sixties, they they barely ma- managed to kind of cling cling to whatever capital they've got, and now they start to to try and build some kind of a life. You you could arguably, and correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, you're talking of a slightly hippie existence for many people who go and they choose to opt out of the uh, high-flying education and opt out of the high-flying jobs. They they have a job, a, a decent job, and they get to do an honest day's work and they, they, they live parsimoniously and they save everything they earn. You could arguably do it harder and faster by going to university, getting the, the degree, getting the trading job, and setting a, a, a timeline for yourself saying, this is going to burn me out in eight years. I'm willing to give my all for those eight years and then stop at the age of 30, 32, whatever the case might be. Yeah, I think, and that's the trade-off that you, that you need to make. So, so to me, I, I don't think that, that this is something that, that just everybody's going to do naturally. And I don't think this will, will appeal to, to, to all of us. Certainly, you know, my own personality has is, is always been slow and steady. I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm never going to be the, there. are no extremes. No. The, yeah, I'm never going to be there. But, but I can take a lot from that. And I think that, you know, that's really the question to, to, to people listening is to say, have you actually thought about this? You know, have you, have you gone out there, you've got your, your career and you've just you know you got cracking and have you thought about what's really important to you and and actually why you do things and why you spend or why you don't spend and why you save or why you don't save and if you can't find reasons to 
build up capital and to save, and, and let's face it, the world in South Africa in particular has a saving problem, then, then maybe you need to figure out what's important to you first and then reprioritize everything. And that's maybe the, the message here. You're right. You, you know, these hippies, and they are hippies to, to, to some extent. Um, I mean, and hippies in the very best possible sense. It's not a derogatory term in this context. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. I mean, I suppose the hippies were good for the world and, and, and to, to some extent now. And, and you know, w- what I find interesting is you know, w- w- there's also sort of this movement around trying to understand uh, where your food comes from. Oh, yeah. And, and so if you can grow it yourself, you know, you know, to me, you've got a pretty good idea of where it comes from. You know, you, you, you've put it there. Absolutely. Uh, can I suggest, though, balance being the operative word, and you say yourself uh, slow and steady, that this is not exactly what our, our, our mutual acquaintance Julia has done over the years, but with her third, third, third strategy, for those of you who haven't met Julia, We'll, we'll bring her back. Should we bring her back? Is she is she, she is she still on the planet? She is, and uh, and and actually, I had had a mail from her today, and, and I think we 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 normally try and see her in July, yeah. same time every year. So so definitely, she'll be back. Okay, Julia is the woman who, as a twenty-seven-year-old, um, went on a road trip with an aunt of hers and said, "Why is your life much so much better than my parents?" And she told her the secret of saving, um, and she for years um, saved a third of everything she earned, paid a third away in tax, and and spent a third, and had a good life on that third. She wasn't the extreme saver. By South African standards, she is extreme. People have been massively inspired by Julia and her story. But her strikes me as being a little bit more palatable. You can have a life and have some fun and still build up a substantial amount of capital, particularly if you've got a decent paying job, that will allow you to have a choice that many people don't have at the age of 50. Exactly. And I think to me, that's the message here is, you know, to take something away from, from, from tonight would be to say, just ask questions about what it is that you do. So so if you're a, um, if you're a couple, you know, do you need... Two fabulous cars. Is is that really important to you? If it is, it's great. Go, you know, go for it. But if you've just bought them because that's what your your friends and neighbours have got, and actually for you, you know, m- maybe a bit more leisure time, a bit earlier in life would be more important. Then, then then you change things. And you know, do you stop and 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 get that sort of fabulous coffee every single morning on the way on the way to work? Do you absolutely need that? You know, or, or do you do one every second day or every third day? Or does it become a treat as opposed to just a, a standard of living? And, and to me, it's so interesting watching young people at, at the, in the working world. I mean, in our office park now, we get this little coffee van that arrives. And, and it's just inundated with youngsters buying the most expensive coffees out there. And that's great. But I wonder if they're thinking about it or if they're just doing it because they feel like a coffee right now. Are you not out there with your stick giving them a lecture? <laughs> Do not, you know what this is costing you over the next 30 years? No, 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 definitely not. And, and I think that's the point about, it, about this is fi- find balance and, 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 and prioritize you know, life. Don't just be kind of on this treadmill because that's what everybody does. And it feels to me that that's what a lot of people are doing, you know, especially those that are in the fortunate position of having a good a good job they just do what everyone around them is doing and to me that's that's quite frustrating warren ingram from galileo capital is a financial advisor sometimes a frustrated financial advisor and director at galileo capital the money show small business before we talk to Pablo Fatidis this evening, I just want to reflect a little bit on a statement that came out of the Small Business Institute. Um, and it meant, I mentioned last night that it, it was high time that we see pushback against the, and I'm going to be polite about this, I feel stronger than this, the disappointment that has been the Department of Small Business. Some people would say the, the disaster. Some people might even say the complete failure to ignite of the Small Business Department. Um, and the, the Small Business Institute uh, said in a statement last night, at no 
notes the Portfolio Committee on Small Business Development has lost patience that the Department of Small Business has been for years unable to describe, let alone fulfill its mandate. Speaking on behalf of the Small Business Institute, Jennifer Cohen, this evening, and it has been shambolic. Not even shambolic. It's not organized enough to become shambolic. It's just never got off the ground, Jennifer Cohen. Well, look, I can't speak about getting off the ground. I think it's underspent its budget for the last couple of years. We've been waiting for the strategy that the Portfolio Committee Chair Ruth Bango asked for yesterday uh, for four years. Um, They've been calling for an organogram of the department. They can't even produce that in four years. But but I think more worryingly, uh, the the main aspect of, of what the small business department is meant to administer which in the small business act is is something in call, in what's called section 18 and this is a section that allows the minister to gazette guidelines to ensure that all laws all policy all costs statutory instrument you name it um are scrutinized by every ministry to make sure that the regulatory environment is harmonized and government is actually applying its collective mind to thinking small first about small business. And this has never been done. And it's part of the reason we have such fractious policy and we have no central coordination of what should be our best chance at inclusive growth and employment. Small businesses around the world provide this for every country except ours. Um, Just on this thinking small first, and I'll, 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 try to answer your next question. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, the UK and the EU looked at this 20 years ago. And for example, in the EU now, you know, we're nothing like the EU, but they did a mapping exercise with by experts and some business associations. There were 13,200 directives and regulations relevant to business. Only 83 mentioned small business. And further, only half of those, I think it was about 44, suggested that small businesses be considered for special treatment. But no one even none of those laws even suggested how this would be done. So so we're not isolated, we're just behind the curve. And mm. you know, the the other aspect of our statement yesterday was that we think the department really should be collapsed. It shouldn't be a department. It should be something across all the departments. But small businesses are a part of the thinking of every ministry and and there should be some kind of strategic coordinating central entity in the presidency because if this is going to be central to our our new dawn uh, it can't be solid in a department that's, as you said, shambolic. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's when one looks at small business and you think, what do small businesses actually need from government to succeed? They don't need a government department to make rules and add more red tape. They need somebody to facilitate the opening up of opportunities and uh, for for government to to create an environment in which they can operate and succeed and thrive. Exactly, and and the, you know, with the president's initiative to try to suggest that we're open to for the business to the world. Um, I don't know if you saw this, but in, in Business Day a couple of days ago, the Enterprise Observatory um, wrote, a, wrote an opinion piece around some of research it's done. And they suggest that 31 businesses with a turnover under 10 million rand close every week. This is a crisis. <laughs> you know, we're not open for business. We're closing businesses. And this enabling environment we've been talking about since 1995 when the white paper came out and which got a fair nod in the NDP, um, but then suddenly the NDP suggests that 90% of our jobs need to come from small businesses in, in, by, you know, in, in two years' time or, t- sorry, 12 years' time. Uh, but there's no co- coordinated policy. You know, there, there, are, there are 783 SOEs 
they probably all have different procurement rules. They have different ways of assessing whether you're a small business to qualify for their procurement chain. Supply chains, not just in government, but in in big business, are. Jennifer Cohn, we're losing you. We're losing you, unfortunately, but thank you. Um, On the line to us from the Karoo, the epicentre of small business, Um, but from the Karoo this evening, Director of Research and Advocacy at the Small Business Institute. Uh, I don't think you're going to disagree with a single thing that Jennifer says. No, I'm not going to at all, Bruce. You know, if if the Small Business Ministry, for example, had an impact on the things that really systemically prevent small businesses moving in a positive direction in the country. That is from establishment. Once they're established, a tax regime that supports and incentivizes small business because small businesses are treated no different to very large businesses from a tax perspective. Competition policy in South Africa, I think, is archaic and arcane. It does not recognize the different challenges in our economy. And unless we actually reshape the economy to accommodate small business and small business growth and development, exactly as was said by Ms. Cohn, I really don't believe we're going to move forward in that direction at all. Mm. To me, it's been all talk and no action. Yeah. And do you agree that they should just collapse the department and, uh, and find a new mechanism? I mean, somehow I feel small business needs a champion. But does it need a minister? Because ministers get involved in politics and, and mucking about. I don't um, uh, you know, we need a champion rather than a, than a minister. I agree, Bruce, and, and, and I don't believe I don't believe that a minister is really necessary for that particular post. Um, what would be great, though, is to see some sort of coordinated strategy across all the ministries that resonates against certain principles, and if those principles can be policified per se and adopted by each of the ministries we'd have small business activities in each of the main sectors of our economy. I have no doubt about that. Pablo Fatidi is here this evening. Uh, he is the managing director, the chief executive, the chief cook, and the bottle washer at uh, Auric Business Accelerator. He's in charge. Um, and we are going to talk to him this evening about how you don't break your business or your reputation, how you break a bad deal. Essentially, firing a client is part of it. I will talk to Pablo about that in a moment. The Money Show. Small business. Small business focus brought to you by Chartered Accountants of South Africa, responsible business leaders. Pablo Fatidis from Auric Business Accelerator. Tell me about this idea of breaking a bad deal and getting rid of the poison without actually damaging your small business. Because so often small businesses are based on that one or those two, or maybe if they're lucky, three great deals. If one is bad, you've got to get out. You have to get out. And Bruce, you know, what really got me thinking about it extensively is I remember that fateful day. I placed money on the fact that Britain would not Brexit. <laughs> and when they did, everyone was suddenly caught with their pants down because Boris Johnson's motivations suddenly fell on scorched earth. There wasn't an alternative plan. If I look at what happened this week with Trump breaking the Iran, the Iran nuclear deal, Similarly, there doesn't seem to be a next step. It still has to be figured out and defined. And that is a terrible place to be because if you get into a deal that doesn't work for you and you break it and you don't break it, you don't break it successfully, you break it with a scorched earth view, you have to bear in mind South Africa is a tiny, tiny economy. We 0.4% of global GDP and your reputation resonates right through from coast to coast over here. So if you're going to break the deal or you're going to make the deal, do it right. 
in both senses. Okay, let's get about let's talk about getting in, and then we need to talk about getting out. How do you get in cleanly that there is a back door that you can utilize should you need to get out, but not give the person with whom you've done the deal the same opportunity if they decide they don't like you, perhaps? Well, you know, it it changes over time because over time, and through no fault of yours or mine, but as you gather a few years of living and life and you engaged in business. Business is a wonderful, wonderful teacher in every sense of the word. And the thing you learn most is not about business, but about yourself if you're doing it right. Because you're going to burn your fingers. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to stumble and fall. And if you're not, well, then you're not doing anything different or anything unusual or anything special. If you're striving for something, I can promise you, you're going to, you're going to hit your toe or you might break a leg, but it's going to happen. And the way you respond around that gives you that self-knowledge. And that self-knowledge is crucial. The extent to which you have it, the extent to which you know yourself, is the extent to which you will successfully start preparing for a deal. Because when a deal needs to be made, Bruce, if you make it with knowledge of yourself around what you can tolerate, around what you can't tolerate, if you make it with the knowledge of what your business is about, and it takes time to figure out what your business is about and what it stands for, and the values of the business. It takes time for these things to mature, to simmer, to develop. The extent to which you have self-knowledge is the extent to which you'll be able to get into a deal or get out of a deal more successfully in both instances. But when you go into a deal, you've also got to go in massively prepared. And part of that is contracting the deal properly because you've, you, nobody needs a contract. Nobody, everyone goes into deals with, with, in good faith. Everybody goes in as buddies with mutual respect. You only need the, the, the contract as so you only need copies of the Constitution when somebody goes AWOL on the agreement. Yeah, I agree with you. But, and you know, here's the thing. Here, the, the problem is really the English language more than anything else or any language that you're using. For example, depending on how you were brought up in comparison to how I was brought up, we might well have a very different definition of the word home. You might see it as a place of habitat, I might see it as a place of safety or whatever the case might be, well-being or whatever the case might be. And yet we agree we're going to do a deal to build a home together. We already have vastly different definitions of what that might mean. So in my view, the preparation is best done through a massive exercise of empathy. You need to say what's in it for me to do this deal and be very clear. More importantly, I need to say, well, what's in it for him to do the deal with me? And be very clear, because if I can understand where you're coming from, if I know where I'm coming from, if I can try and interpret where you're going to, and I know where I'm going to, we're already more aligned. And even with that massive exercise of empathy, Bruce, I still think you should always date before you get married. Okay, good, good view, good view. And get the deal cleanly defined. Cleanly, cleanly, cleanly defined. Yes, to the extent that you can. And you know, sometimes it doesn't suit you to. You either define it very tightly and you define it tightly by giving it very clear, hard lines about what's at stake over here and how things will work. And you do so when your IP is at risk in the deal. In other words, you're going to be exposing intellectual property because that allows for a tight contract. It allows for a, a, a non-compete. It allows for, for protections. If you define the contract very loosely, if you define what the deal is very loosely, if you define what each party will be doing loosely, that allows for the opportunity to go into the deal, to learn what works, what doesn't work, 
and then to redefine the deal tightly afterwards. So depending on what it is that is being done in the deal, who's going to be more exposed or not? If you're very exposed, go for a tight definition. Mm. If you're not, go for a looser definition. Okay. We're in. It's great. And then it's not so great anymore. Or we decide to change our focus or we want to do something else and we want to get out. Okay, so you should always prepare. You should always prepare to manage the downside. Leave the upside open, but always prepare to manage the downside. And one of the best ways to do this is deals suggest we have committed. And when deals don't work, the instinctual the instinctive reaction is one of betrayal. And betrayal is a terrible emotion because it makes you mad and it makes you behave badly and it makes you not hear what's being said or not see what's being shown. I always think that in order to manage that process, try and define success in metrics, in numbers, and try and do the deal in such a way that the numbers come out. And in the early stages of that relationship, when you've done a deal with someone, Insist on meeting face-to-face every week as opposed to once a month or once a quarter because you need to socialize the relationship. You need to start in those meetings getting a true sense of where that person's coming from and allowing them to get a true sense of where you are coming from. Also, Bruce, if the numbers don't speak well for one party or the other, it's important to emphasize that the numbers are not speaking well for sustainability and to start, let's say, warming the platform for an alternative deal to be done as opposed to this deal breaking the relationship. Uh, if you, and, and it's also better to have the conversation earlier rather than later because by the time you're having the conversation later, you've already created a thousand different scenarios in your head as to what the other party is experiencing or doing. They know there's a problem. You know there's a problem. Neither of you has addressed the problem. And so both of you are concocting scenarios that, exist only in your mind. Completely. And those scenarios then form your cognitive biases. Those scenarios put me in a position where I, if I've gotten to the point where I have believed you are a rotter and you're stealing and you're not doing your fair share and I'm feeling betrayed, literally, Bruce, anything you say, I will interpret within that context. What do you mean by that? (laughs) Exactly. And that's where it begins. And that's important because... If we're going to have the conflict, it's important that I know if I'm initiating the breakup of the deal, I need to be very, very cognizant of what you're going to go through. And the first thing you're going to go through is going to be pure shock at the fact that... Why are you clenching your fist like that? Why are you feeling it? (laughs) Like, why on earth are you doing this? You know, we had a deal. From there, you're going to move into anger and perhaps even aggression. This is like sounds like a bad breakup. It is a bad breakup. And the next thing you will experience is... Well, perhaps, you know, I need to now throw my pity party. I'm going to feel all depressed about this. And you're going to go through a low, low period. From there, you're going to come to acceptance. And then eventually, you're going to get to a point where you're saying, okay, this is a reality. It is happening. The deal is breaking. Perhaps we might have to look at an alternative. Now, Bruce, if I communicate that to you, and I don't recognize that you're going to go through that emotional cycle. As well. As well. There is, in martial arts, you get taught... (laughs) They're two nervous systems. So when you step into a ring one for a is fight. One terrified and the other one <laughs> you can't move, yeah? You've got the sympathetic mm. nervous system, which is the fight or flight nervous system. And the way that it gets triggered in your body, you step into the ring, you get hit on the nose, you take a gasp, in a short, short breath into the top of your lungs, automatically that releases adrenaline out of your adrenal glands 
and you're in fight or flight mode. You won't hear anything rational. You won't behave rationally. And so it goes. When you're going to break the deal, you need to take deep breaths. And I really mean it because your mind follows your breath and your body follows your mind. If you take in the deep breaths and you're communicating this, you will be able to withstand the anger, the resentment, the aggression, and not take it personally. The person on the other side of the table is being human. Such important lessons, really important lessons. And ultimately, it would be better for both parties to leave the arrangement with pride, dignity, and some money intact. If you can extricate yourself from the deal with those three things in place, you're probably doing okay. You, you, you probably are doing okay. And I think, you know, there's a wonderful thing. If you, if you have a relationship with someone in business and it doesn't work out and you can find a way to make it work or you can find an amicable sense around it, it gives you a lot of exposure to each other for the next deal because bad deals, deals that don't work, when both parties get to a point of acknowledge it, acknowledging it and find a way to make it work, you've got a huge ally there. And I'll give you a great case study of this. Remember the deal that was struck in the very early years when Dropbox was made available for free to people like you and me. And then of a day, they broke that deal because they started to then charge for Dropbox. And how did they do it? What they did, and this is very typical in every business and in every deal, because we can't be 100% certain of the future, I do a deal with you, you do a deal with me, we start to see what works and what doesn't work. We realize that the deal is not shaped for sustainability and success. If I then approach you with a way to extract more value, to get a better deal, but by changing some of the terms of the deal in order to maintain the relationship, that's a very different approach to saying, it's not working, I'm out. Because if you left with that sense of betrayal, it breaks the deal, it scorches the earth, it breaks the business, and it breaks your reputation. And you lose money in the deal, and you lose the opportunity to start again. Completely. Quickly and cleanly. Pablo Fatini's Auric Business Accelerator on a Thursday night. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Is that the time already? Yes, that's the time already. You're 80% through the first five-day week in a month and a half. You've survived this far. It's only Friday left to go. Have a good evening. Good night.